So as Karen mentioned in the welcome today, we are completing our summer teaching series uh, in Romans today. Uh, Next week, we're starting a new series as we go back to our four services that's entitled Encounter, which we're really looking forward to. But today, we're going to be looking, uh, as we've done each week, at one chapter of Romans. So each week this summer, we've looked at a chapter, and today we're completing uh, our study by looking at chapter 16 and taking some time uh, to ask ourselves some questions, as we've tried to do each week, of Uh, What does it look like to follow Jesus in these times in which we're in and in our day and age? And today what I'd like you to do is to listen to all of this with the idea uh, and the backdrop being present that we're seeking to understand this morning how it is that we are called to make decisions in our life. That's what we're going to be talking about today is how we make decisions, which on the surface of it, you're like, well, I've kind of got my way of doing it, right? I've kind of got how this happens and my family works a certain way and I work a certain way and, and this is how we do this. And most decisions that, that define our days, we don't really think about, right? Like you might be thinking about uh, where are we going to lunch after this or how long is the sermon going to go and uh, what, you know, are we going to do bluegrass again kind of a feel next week uh, here at the 1105s, like all these sort of decisions that we make, but also some of the most important important things that define each of our days and each of our weeks and each of our lives is about how we make decisions. What are the values? What are the processes that go in to making the decisions that we are called to make? And most of us probably could be, uh, it'd be useful to be a little bit more intentional about how we do that because decisions define our life. Because while some decisions are about where are we going to go to lunch and where might the lines be shortest, there are others that are certainly more important, right? Am I going to ask this person to marry me? If they ask me to marry him, am I going to say yes? That's like all we need to know, right? Like that's the whole thing. So that one we got down. Others that might uh, be is um, where are we going to go to college? So that's, a, that's one. What am I going to uh, major in? Is it time to stop treatment? What are the values that go into making the decisions that we make? How do we make them? And we're going to look at this idea of how the Bible calls us to make decisions in our life, the small ones and the large ones, by looking at how we as the church have made decisions based on a certain issue that we see in this last chapter of Romans, Romans 16. And the issue that we're going to be looking at is about the issue of how the church has made decisions around the role of women in leadership in the church. How have we decided that? How is that being discussed and decided? What are the values that go into that? Now, I want you to know that from the beginning, this is kind of not one of those sermons where you're like, I don't know, where's he going to wind up? Like, where's, I just don't, we don't know where this is going to go. We're a church that has decided uh, for many years, and I am proud of this, that we have women who are serving in every level of leadership, in uh, staff and in our laity. We, um, we hold that position. My wife is a pastor. I would like to go home and be able to eat lunch today. So this isn't one of those sermons where we're like, I don't know where we're going to wind up. Like, where are we going to go in this whole thing, right? We have made this decision. But I wonder this morning how many of us know why we've made this decision. 
Why do we hold the position that we do? How have we made this decision? And so I'd like us to talk about the why in that, which you see in Romans 16, and then similarly to hold in our own minds and our own hearts, what are the decisions that we're facing today? Because whatever the decisions are that you and I are wrestling with in our life or in our culture, in our society, or in our families, how we've made this decision might serve as some sort of template or guide for how we're all called to make decisions, okay? The scripture passage that we're going to be looking at is just the first two verses of Romans 16, and this is what it says. Paul writes this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centre, so that you may, by the way, that has, I have no idea if that's how you pronounce that word. I just feel like that needs to be on the internet. People are like, oh, you know, it's wondering like how it was you pronounced that word. If any of you have a difference, like, I don't think it's that, you might be right. I have no idea. But he's still commending Phoebe, a deacon, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that no matter who we are, how we walk in here, you would guide us this day. Speak to each of us, we pray, through the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends, so as we have this conversation, I want to set this up in in a very particular way. And you may not suffer from the condition that I am going to describe here, but I am someone who suffers from a a sort of inability to always articulate in a debate or in an argument exactly what I think. It might just be me. But I'm one of those people that when you're in a debate or in a discussion or in an argument that you might sit there for a while and kind of argue it out and then like you don't really feel settled, like you didn't put your best foot forward and then three and a half hours after the conversation ends, you're like, that's what I wanted to say, right? Like this is, this is something that happens to me all the time. It happens in my marriage and it's not just I'm saying this because she's here because my wife is smarter than me and faster on her feet than I am. So every discussion that we have in our marriage usually ends kind of with me sort of going like, okay, fine, I guess. And then because I'm mature, I go pout for a while. And then after that, like three and a half hours later, you're like, wait a minute, that's the point I was trying to make. And then I have to ask the question, do I call her up and try to re-engage, right? (laughs) Because you call and you're like, hey, remember that conversation we were having? She was like, this one? You're like, no, 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 the one before that. You remember that conversation we were having? This is what I was trying to say. And then she responds and I get all tied up in knots. And then, you know, it's just a downward spiral at that point. And I might be the only one. But sometimes I am somebody that thinks afterwards of what I wish I had been able to think of in the moment at the beginning. And you all today get to hear a response that I would like to make to a debate that took place eight years ago. (laughs) Which none of you were a part of. It's going to be a really exciting morning. And this is a debate that I actually wasn't even a part of. I was uh, part of a group where the debate was taking place. And I do want you to know in all seriousness that everything I'm going to say to you, I already said to the people that were a part of this conversation. This, this debate took place in a certain setting while we were living in Atlanta eight years ago. And it was a group of pastors that there was funding from a foundation that all over the United States, they wanted to get in major cities, different pastors together to form what were called MICA groups. And these groups were intentionally uh, diverse. And so what they wanted was people, pastors of different racial ethnic congregations. They wanted um, pastors of different 
different denominations that saw things differently, and they wanted gender balance in there. And so there was all this diversity with 12 pastors coming together, and I was one of the two organizers of the Atlanta kind of chapter of the microgroups. And I got to tell you, we met for two years, and it was an incredible thing. We learned a ton. We built bridges. We made relationships. We heard about how other churches approach things that kind of opened your mind to how things should go. But we met monthly, and one day as we were meeting, a conversation began. And the conversation was between a pastor of a church that took a more conservative stance on the issue of women being in leadership and a woman who was part of our group who was a pastor. And they started talking about why they believe the things that they did in their church about whether women should serve in leadership or not. And I need you to know from the beginning, it was an awesome conversation. Because these were people that had formed a relationship, they loved each other, they respected one another, and they saw this differently, and that was the point of the whole group. Now, as an organizer, I was freaking out, because it's like, this is either going to work really beautifully and wonderfully, or we're about to just degenerate into chaos. And my identity as a leader was tied up in that, and it was all different kinds of insecurities that played out. But this was like what it was supposed to do, right? And so like, as you're watching, you're like, how is this going to go, right? And here's how it ended. It ended with the pastor of the more conservative church on these issues, and I don't like those labels because a church that's conservative, one thing is liberal on another, and a church that's liberal on one thing is conservative on another. I don't like those labels. But who's conservative on this issue, in the end, summed up their conversation by going, you know, we just explained that we saw this differently because our church takes a more biblical stance. And then she said, that's right, and our church takes a stance where we've kind of gone with the times and understand that contexts have changed and how women are viewed in leadership. That was the sum up to their conversation, which I found deeply unsatisfying on both sides. And you get to hear my response now, <laughs> because I know you all want to. How do we think about this? Why do we make the decisions that we do? How do we make decisions, and how can that inform the way that you and I make decisions every day of our lives as people of faith? Well, I want to start by addressing the second part of this first. The one that said, you know, it's like, well, the Bible kind of understood women in leadership in this way and that, you know, it was a different context and it was a different time. And now we see it this way. Now, there's parts of that that are true in both the times and the cultures where the Old Testament and the New Testament were largely written and lived out. Women were often seen as property. They were seen as property of either their husband or of their father. And women were denied what we would see as is very real rights that men were able to do. And they, for instance, you know, one thing that we know from uh, a lot of times in Scripture is that women were not allowed to give witness in a courtroom. They were not seen as reliable or trustworthy witnesses when a, a, a case was being tried. There were all kinds of things that we would look at in that way. And so this viewpoint that says, well, on the one hand, that's how they understood it now, but this is how we see it today. That's probably what a lot of us, when we look at a church like Covenant, it's like, well, that's kind of what we do, right? That's why we've made this decision. We're kind of at a different place. We've progressed since then. Things are different. I wonder if that's how we want to make decisions. Because there's a slippery slope to that way of thinking, right? Because the slippery slope to that way of thinking is that all of a sudden, anything I don't like that's in the Bible, I can just go... Phew culturally, what they understood. I don't have to listen to anything I don't like. Because I can just sit there and go, well, that's what it was like when it was written. 
And that premise is based on the idea of how history works, this idea that we're just progressing all the time, right? That it's like, well, 2,000 years ago, they were sort of here. And as history goes on, we just sort of have progress, right? And we've had progress in this, which I want to be clear, I believe is progress on this front. But is history just progressing? Is it kind of a slow, steady line where each and every century we're just kind of getting better and better and better? Well, it's hard to read any history book and believe that that is a legitimate viewpoint because the most atrocious things this world has ever seen have pretty much been committed in the last hundred years. Now, some of that's because we have the technological ability to do more and to do more destructive or good things than happened before, but you can have a, a difficult time making the case that human beings are actually improving as time goes by. And that's happened on every continent and every culture all around the world. What even goes deeper in that is how we make this decision about saying, well, that's how they saw things then, but this is how we see things now because we're in a more enlightened place. Well, how do we make those decisions? Like if somebody says to me, who's someone who has two children and both of my children are daughters, that your children don't have the same opportunities as anyone else, that goes through me as wrong. But what lies behind how we make those decisions? Well, what lies behind the philosophy behind that in our culture, and this has been developing over a long time, is that we believe and we make decisions in our culture based on the rights and the autonomy of an individual. I have my right to make my choices, to follow my dreams, to do what I'm going to do. I have my truth and my spirituality and my way of living. And we make decisions all the time, individually and corporately, in our culture where the right and the autonomy of the individual reigns supreme. So if someone says that we're in a church where women don't serve in leadership, for many of us, our response to that is, that's not right because it denies people equal access and their individual rights to pursue the things they want to do. Is that how we make decisions? Is that simple progress? Because it seems to me there's some flat sides of that. There's flat sides of this truth and the autonomy of the individual getting to do whatever I want to do, my truth, my way of being, my money, my finances, my way of living my life. For the beginning, it's an extremely lonely way of going through life because nobody can ever speak into your truth. So you have to remain with everyone at arm's length. And that starts creating all kinds of different things. For example, one of the things that we see is that in our society today, we are seeing unprecedented numbers of people who are being diagnosed with different um, addictions, with different kinds of anxiety, with different depression. Now, those are complicated issues. I have a lot of people in my family that suffer from clinical depression. It's not that there's one thing that caused that. That's a complex thing. But there are environmental causes and cultural causes that contribute to this. A study was just released a couple of months ago by one of the large insurance companies in this country that has seen the number of cases of depression spiking among all age groups in our country. All age groups across the board, and it's dramatic in recent decades. And one of the things that they specifically looked at in this study was the dramatic increase of the rates of depression among teenagers and young adults. And they not only saw the numbers that were spiking, but in this study they started asking the question, why? What's going on in what we can understand of cultural and environmental causes that's causing this dramatic swing? And what they saw was that there were two primary cultural environmental causes. The first is this, the extreme pressure on young people to succeed, to be a success, 
to be recognized as a success. And where does that come? Well, that comes from the idea that my individual worth and meaning is found in my accomplishments, my resume, where I go to school, the accomplishments of my children, the things that we do that create us to have meaning. This comes in an extremely individualistic culture. The people who wrote the scriptures, they wouldn't have understood that that's where meaning comes from because they were much more communal and they understood that meaning was found in how you relate to the people around you. For us, it's like, no, this is my path. These are my dreams. It's my career. This is my resume. This is how I feel important and worth something. And so we will cheat our way through school if we need to. We will do the things that we need to do to get ahead. We might not feel good about it, but in the end, the goal is winning. Because that's where I find my worth. I know that the Bible says that my worth is that I'm created as a child of God. But in the real world, i got to prove myself to those around me to know that I'm somebody. And what does that start meaning about when that becomes our definition of success and where we find worth? Well, it starts meaning that, among other things, everyone around us at some level, and I know we don't like to admit this out loud, is competition. Our, sp- our siblings, our friends... Our coworkers, the people in our fraternity or sorority. And then we post our successes on Facebook and say, isn't my life amazing? Because I can focus on the image that lets me look like I am just so happy and put together. All the time. Always. That's number one. Number, cause number two that they found in the study that's related to it is that in the end, we are lonelier than ever before, that a phenomenon that is happening increasingly around the world, but it is true, very true in our culture, is that number one, we are more ur- urbanized at any point in human history. There are more people living in cities than at any point in human history, and study after study after study after study shows that at the exact same time, we are becoming lonelier than any point in history because we are isolated because my life is about me. It is true, and I want to be clear about this, that we might look back on the times in the Bible and go, how did they think that way? That's not how we think now. But we also must hear that if the people from the times of the scriptures were able to, they would look at our society and in some ways look at us and go, that's progress? History doesn't move this way. You you cannot look at it and actually in any logical way think that that's what's happening. It doesn't line up. And I'd like to submit today that even though that way of thinking gets us to the place that I believe we should do, of having women who serve in leadership equally with men in our church and in our society, it is not because of individual rights and choices. It's because of calling. And that's a totally different way to look at life. So how do we make this decision? And that brings us back to the first part of the argument. Where my more conservative friend, who I love and respect dearly, said, well, we take the more biblical position. I love him. I respect him greatly. But on this issue, he is wrong. The Bible does not say that women cannot serve in positions of leadership the same as men when you look at the overarching movement of Scripture. And this is how we do make decisions. No matter what decisions we're facing, what does the Scriptures, what is the call of God lead us to? 
And if we're going to make this position and talk about this, then we need to admit that if you are in the same place where I am and understand that, that we believe in equality for men and women serving in leadership, that there are positions in the Bible and verses in the Bible that are hard for us, and we can't dismiss them. We can't just throw them away because we choose not to like them. And so, for instance, we're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says that women should not be in positions of authority where they are teaching men. The Bible says that. It does. Or you could take that and even like one-up it by saying 1 Corinthians 14 goes even further and says that women should cover their heads in church and not say a word. Don't say a word. Don't do it. Don't ask any questions about what's going on. And when you get home, you can ask your husband. I know, right? <laughs> Friends, Paul wasn't married, okay? And, I, and this is just like an assumption on my part, but I don't think that husbands at the time heard that and were like, yeah, that's how it works. I think even at the time, there were husbands who were like, are you kidding me? You think that's what happens? Like, you think that, that our wives, that we go home from any event, and that the response, the natural response of our wives is just like, illumine me with what else you think about this world and what the questions I have, right? I mean, I've shared this before. If I say to Beth after a Sunday, it's like, what do you think of the sermon? We've never had that moment where she was like, I wish you had just kept speaking. And, you know, and bringing truth and wisdom into my life as we go. It's like, well, why did you say this? And did you look at the scripture? This? And that's a good thing. It's a good, good thing. But, this is, but we have to acknowledge those passages are there. And it's easy for someone to go, well, we have the more biblical position. And they throw out 1 Corinthians 14. And then it's done. And you're like, well, I guess we just, I, well, I just don't agree with that. I just don't like it. That's not how we see things in our culture anymore. But the way, friends, that we have to respond is we have to look and to say, well, what does it say? Even take those two, what are on this position, more conservative issues on women. Well, which one are they following? That women can't teach men in positions of authority or they can't say anything at all? Well, the way that my friend's church works is he said, well, what we do is that we, in our biblical position, say that women can only teach children and middle school students and high school students. But when a young man graduates from high school, then they become a man and then they can't be in a teaching position over him anymore. And you're like, right, because high school graduation was a concept that Paul was wrestling with when he went through this, right? And so you want to look, and, and I've done this with them, and go, so which one are you following? Do women not speak in church, in your church at all, and they only ask? He goes, well, no, we just don't do the truth. It's like, exactly. You can't say you have the more biblical position. It's not possible, because even on the two most conservative things, you've got to pick one or the other. And so, therefore, it becomes something where we say, well, how do we deal with these passages? And the way that we make decisions is to say that it is under the Bible that we make them, but what is the overarching teaching of the Bible when we see these different things? And what I believe is that when these verses are thrown out, they are the anomaly of what Scripture teaches. They're not the norm. Because somewhere I read about Deborah who was one of the judges in the Old Testament whom God appointed and called to lead the people for years in both the political and the religious life of Israel and the people flourished under her reign. Somewhere I read about Jesus who was accused by those around him and the religious authorities of many things, including the fact that in his inner circle were both men and women whom he seemed to treat as equal. Somewhere I read 
about the book of Acts and how when the church exploded into Europe, it didn't explode through uh, the homes and the churches and the leadership of men, but that the first church where there was a conversion in modern day Europe took place in the household of Lydia. And that Lydia was not just a woman that the disciples first encountered, but that she was a trader in purple cloth. She was a savvy, wealthy businesswoman who had a house big enough for the church to start meeting in, the first church in modern day Europe. And when she was baptized as the first convert, it says, her whole household was baptized as well, meaning that she was one of the few women at the time that served as the head of her household. Somewhere I read about the Apostle Paul who wrote in Galatians that in Jesus Christ something happens that's bigger than every individual having a choice, but that we are forged into a new and common identity, that in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, because we are one in Jesus Christ. And somewhere I read about Phoebe, a deacon in the church, that in Romans 16, 1 and 2, Paul commends among and above all other deacons. And if we want to stay biblical, then let's stay biblical. What does it mean to be a deacon? We're going to bring the scripture passage up here from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's stay biblical. A deacon is this. Deacons likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first be tested. Then, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good, under, good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't commend Phoebe because she's the quietest, meekest person who just goes home and asks her husband the best questions. She was a leader in that community, an example to the men and women in the church in Rome that Paul is addressing. I'm proud that we serve in a church that has an egalitarian structure of leadership. And I want my two daughters to know that as they grow older, they will have the chance to serve in leadership if they are called in any capacity that they choose, but it is not because they have a right to. I don't want them living under the burden and isolation that comes from that mindset being how we make decisions. I want them to know that they are connected to the creator of the universe and he loves them and calls them as much as anyone else. And that is a different way of understanding how we make decisions. It's not about choice. It's about calling. What are you wrestling with today? What decisions are you facing? And do you know that there is a call on those decisions that comes from God, a leading that you can hear of the voice of the divine that comes through the pages of Scripture? Because as it says, if we really seek the answers that we need in life, if we seek, we shall find. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask this day that you would lead and guide us because our days, our lives are defined by the decisions we make. 
Help us to be more than cultural captives. Help us to be more than just people who believe that somehow we are better than any generation that has ever come before us. But help us to be kingdom-oriented people who listen for your call, believing that your call is the most liberating and abundant way of living that any of us will ever find. Lead and guide us in the decisions before us as people, as families, as a community, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.